I'm Amy Wagner. Welcome to the best of Simply Money. Each week we put together some of our favorite segments in the 55 KRC radio show exclusively for this podcast. You've heard the broad strokes of the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, but some of its fine details could dramatically change the way Americans save for retirement. Steve and I discuss how this legislation could affect you and how to navigate a phased retirement. We also break down the relationship between gold and inflation and why it isn't what you think it is. Finally, I interview Mo Egger, host of the afternoon show on ESPN 1530 and a contributor to The Athletic, about the financial implications of the University of Cincinnati's move to the Big 12 Conference. It's a big one. Congress is considering some major changes to the way you save. You're listening to Simply Money tonight. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. There's a lot of headlines about this $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, but something that may not be making the headlines could have a major impact on the way you save. Steve, I do like that Congress is looking at the fact that we have a retirement crisis here in the United States and trying to figure out, okay, what can we do about it? And crisis is the word, Amy. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the numbers I saw were that half of those age 55 and over have zero retirement savings. So, it. yeah, yeah. I, I, but, you know, this is typical Congress. OK, let's fix it with something that's going to have massive unintended consequences. <laughs> I, I, I mean, this is early in the stage. And, you know, we keep talking about this three and a half trillion dollar bill. This is just a committee vote. And it was a close one, 22 to 20. But the House Ways and Means Committee said, no, we're going to force people to start saving in their 401k plan. And, and we're going to do that at a six percent rate. So, okay, I, I I know you're for retirement savings. Okay, yeah, yeah 6%. I, I mean, okay, so no matter what you want to do, you're going to be defaulted into 6%. Oh, and by the way, that's going to be increased and escalate up to 10% uh, guaranteed savings out of your, your paycheck. So it's going to be across the board if this thing continues to hold. But, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm crazy about the, the uh, 10% going into the Roth 401k because that's after tax money. Yeah, you mentioned the unintended consequences. And so I think you can look at this in both ways, right? The intended consequences and the unintended consequences. Sure. And what they're intending here is that there's a large portion of Americans who have no means of saving for retirement through their workplace. Right. Pensions are long gone, a thing of the past. 401ks have come to the forefront since then, but not all employers offer them, especially if you work for a smaller employer. It's incredibly expensive, and there's a number of issues that come along with it, and so often you don't have an option. So I think the intended consequence here was, hey, employers step up. And the deal with employers is you have to be a business that's been open for two years mm -hmm. with at least five employees. Right. And at that point, if you do not offer something to that employee, whether it's a 401k, an IRA, some kind of 401k option, you're going to be taxed. And the tax for it isn't pretty. It's like $10 a day per employee until you comply. Until you fix it. Yeah. yeah. Until you get on track. Yeah. How's that no. for an incentive? Oh, that's, that's a big old <laughs> hammer. You you better believe it. But, you know, here here's the thing. So, okay, if they follow through with this, so you're going to see basically every company set up a 401k. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah. But here's where they get you. I, I mean, they're always going to get you. Whenever they give you something, they're going to take something and they're forcing this money to go into the Roth 401k, not the traditional 401k. Why do most people put money in their 401k? It's pre-tax. 
We don't yeah. we don't pay tax on it. Well, that's not the case here. They're making you put it in after tax. So guess what? The government is turning this into a tax bill, a tax issue. They're going to be collecting money. So, yeah. okay, 6% right off the bat goes into the after-tax account in your 401k, and they're going to increase that to the uh, to 10%. So the government's looking at this as a huge, huge revenue grab. It's not all just being nice guys. Hey, here's something we want to give you. They're getting some money out of this. Which, to be fair, we are often big fans of having a, a Roth option, of diversifying your tax treatment. That in and sure. of itself is not a bad thing. But hey, it depends on your individual circumstances, right? If right. you're in a high tax bracket now and expect to be in a lower one in retirement, well, then paying Roth taxes now, it, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So there's a number of things to think through here, but, but I do like the concept of auto enrollment. Um, and, and, and say what, it, and you can opt out of it, but yeah. you actually have that to takes take effort. this. Yes, you have to take the steps to opt out of it. And I think yeah. for a lot of people who just don't spend any time thinking about right. retirement, the fact that it's there, that it's that it's accumulating in the background, that you're not really thinking about it, isn't necessarily a bad thing. Now, listen, for most of us, your your 401k is your number one tool for saving for retirement. So this whole set it and forget it, you know, auto enrollment thing would not work for no. me. But for the Americans, for those of you out there who just don't know what's going on, aren't paying attention to this, I don't know. It may not be a bad thing. 6%, and over the course of several years, it increases to 10% yeah, of your pay. Yeah, but play play this out a little bit. I mean, call call me skeptical, but here here's devil's skeptical. advocate. Yeah, exactly. Here's devil's advocate. Play this out. You're saving 10% a year from the time you're, you know, early 20s or so when you when you first start going to work. I told both my boys when, when they got out of college, here's what I want you to do. 10% in your 401k, and let's also start building up just a bank savings account for your first home and marriage and all that kind of stuff. And they did it, and they are so far ahead of the game, it's not oh, even sure. funny. So that this is the good part. People will start saving 10% of their money in a... Uh, after-tax 401k retirement account. Great. Guess how much money they're going to have by the time they're 60 if they continue to do so. I mean, we're talking millions. Pretty penny. Oh, yeah. it adds up really, really quickly. Are you telling me that the government is going to continue to allow distributions from Roth 401ks and Roth IRAs to be tax-free if you've got a whole bunch of people retiring by the time they're 60 and billions and trillions of dollars are in these accounts that are going to be distributed tax-free, oh, you better believe that's not going to be the case. They're, they're going to look at that and say, hey, why should all these people be getting money out of their retirement accounts tax-free? Well, that was your promise. Yeah, but that was a long time ago. That was, that was 2021. You know? I wasn't in. I wasn't in Congress then. I wasn't yeah. in the White House then. That yeah. was my predecessor. I had nothing to do with that. You're uh. listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC as we talk about this three and a half trillion dollar reconciliation bill and what's not making headlines about it, which is all of the ways it could affect your savings and your retirement. Uh, so, so regardless of what you think about being auto enrolled, once you're auto enrolled, Steve, what you are auto enrolled in, and this is what I take exception to, is a target date fund. Yeah. And let's talk about what a target date fund is. This is essentially, um, you know, Steve Sprovac, if you are thinking about retiring in 10 years, 
anyone else who's retiring in 10 years uh, gets put in the same fund. And the closer you get to retirement, the more it goes from stocks into bonds, the kind of the safer the investments get. So you're really kind of lumped into a group of people based on the only thing being your target date for retirement. Yeah, but it's better than what they used to do. In in the old days, and, and I can talk about the old days because I'm old, um, in, in the old days, the default was the money market fund. How yeah. would you like putting your money, in other words, if you didn't sign up for anything, you were automatically put into an account that's, what, what are money markets earning these days? Maybe, oh my gosh. Maybe one-tenth of one percent. Not so, much. So at least it's a little better than the money market fund, but here's why I'm not a big fan. It's better than nothing. But a target date fund is not going to have the best choices available to you. Let, let, let's just talk about this a second. So where does Fidelity, where does Oppenheimer, where does a mutual fund company make their money off of internal fees? So let's say you've got a billion-dollar mutual fund and the internal fee is 1%. You never see the money come out, but it means you're earning 1% less in, in that example. So that in, in, in that example is $10 million that the mutual fund company is making. Well, if it's a great mutual fund, people are writing checks left and right and investing in that fund, and it'll go from a billion to $2 billion in, in no time at all. What happens if it's a mediocre fund? Nobody right. puts money into it. That's what they put into these target date funds because the mutual fund company wants them to grow, but they're not good enough for people to invest in on their own. But when it's a default option, guess what? People are putting money into it without really researching it. So I'm not a big fan because you tend to get mediocrity at best mediocrity and one size fits all. And I yeah. think that most of us, when we think about our retirement, don't like either one of those ways of describing nah, it. No. We're not about mediocrity. Yeah, not at all. And listen, to be clear, what we're talking about now is not close to being law. So in the Senate, Democratic lawmakers still have to hang out, hammer out their deal on the overall cost of the legislation. Um, Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders paints the current price tag of some kind of compromise uh, from $6 trillion, who, who knows, somewhere between $6 trillion and three and a half half trillion. A lot of unknowns about this, but we do want to just shine a spotlight on the things that will affect you. One of those being changes to Medicare. And I think a lot of people are going to perk up about this one. Yeah. I mean, they were, we've seen lots of proposals. Again, this thing, they, they want this bill to be put to bed by the end of September. It ain't happening. <laughs> and and what I like is Joe Manchin has become one of the most powerful people in Congress because yes. he's, he's a moderate, moderate Democrat. Which, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, that's, yeah, that, that's unusual. But um, yeah, they've been talking about lowering the Medicare age of eligibility from 65 to 60, which, which sounds great on paper. But when, you know, when the system is going belly up in the next three or four years, expanding it to more people yeah, is maybe not the option. That doesn't solve the problem. So it looks like they're they're taking that out and, and leaving it at, at 65. But they are including dental, hearing, vision benefits. Okay, you know, that that's going to cost money, but maybe they can make that work. It would be nice because I know for a lot of retirees, you know, going to the dentist or getting new hearing aids, that's a major, major cost outlay, and, and it's not included under current law in Medicare. Maybe it'll be covered in the, the new proposal. We'll see. Yeah, and speaking of the proposal, right, and how many iterations we have been through so far, one thing that has been talked about that's gotten a lot of talk, actually, is if you were to inherit an asset, whether it be Procter & Gamble stock, whatever it is from someone else, you inherit it, you pay taxes on the stepped-up basis, right? So not however much that person paid for that stock back in 1975 or whenever it was that they bought it, but on the day of their death, when it is, you know, inherited by you, then that's the stepped-up basis. 
that's where you start counting yep. what you would have to pay taxes for, right? And this has gotten, you know, eliminating this for a lot of people when you're thinking about inheritance and estate planning, man, that raised a lot of red flags. This yeah. one appears to be off the table. Uh, and I hope it stays off the table because it's been like Lazarus. I mean, it keeps getting put to bed, <laughs> put, put to death. It's been and then, resurrected And, and, and then it resurrects. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, let, let's hope this one's dead because this is a major component of financial planning. Um, like you said, you inherit P&G stock. Um, mom and dad, you know, saw this P&G stock go from $10,000 to maybe $200,000 over the course of their life. Well, this would force that gain to be realized and money go to the government, a huge, huge tax grab. Um, I'm very happy that this is put to rest, and I hope it's put to rest for good. Here's the Simply Money point. Now, nothing here is law just yet, but we will continue to keep an eye on how the federal government's decisions will impact your retirement. Inflation. We know it's running hot right now. So then why is the price of gold down? This is not the historical right knowledge out there is gold is supposed to be a hedge for inflation. Yeah. And I, I get calls all the time from people asking me about gold and, and should I be buying gold right now? And, you know, of course, I think they're directly related to the number of commercials on TV yep. who happen to be uh, made by people who sell gold. So yeah, they're going to be a little biased. But Amy, I, I remember, you know, a couple hundred years ago when I started in the business, that was the rule. Put 10% of your money in gold because gold is a hedge against inflation. It goes up when stocks go down. And I'll tell you what, in 1987, when the stock market dropped 20, literally 25% in one day, gold didn't do what it was supposed to. And ever since then, people have been wondering what, you know, what happened to the old rule? I thought it was supposed to be an inflation. There isn't the correlation between market drops and gold increases and inflation that people think there should be. Well, there is with a major caveat, right? Let's talk about that. So there's some new research that was conducted by a couple of professors at Duke University. And what they found is that gold does work as an inflation hedge only when measured over long periods of time. So in my world, Steve, a long period of time is like two or three weeks. Yeah. They're talking yeah. about a century no, or no. more. Yeah. And I, 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 yeah, throw that research out. It, it means nothing to me. You know, I, it was interesting. Because I mean, I get being a long-term investor, but yeah. nobody is ever looking at it at a time horizon, investment horizon no. of a hundred years. No, not at all. Maybe a year or two, but no, you know, th this, uh, this was interesting, an interesting topic. I, I went back and looked at the, the, the great recession, the market crash of mm -hmm. 08 and 09, right? So what was gold at, at, Prior to the the market collapse, okay. When I mean, we're talking about people are starting to forget that we were concerned if the U.S. economy was going to survive. Was the banking system going to fall apart? Every day the news got worse and worse. So, what did the price of gold do? Well, August first of two thousand and eight, right before the big drop, um, gold was trading around nine hundred nine hundred and ten dollars an ounce. So, all right, how how much did gold go up? After the big collapse and stock prices dropped 30 percent and we were at the bottom around April, May of 2009, how much did it go up? It went from about $900, $910 to $920. That was it. Mm. I, I mean, yeah. it really didn't do anything in a total market collapse. It wasn't until a year or two later that it shot up to $1,800 uh, an ounce. So, yeah. okay, that now you're looking at a big rise after we started seeing the big stock market recovery. So, you know, it, it, that proved to me just once again 
gold is an asset class, but it's not one that you should depend on to protect you when other prices are dropping. But it always makes headlines, right? Whenever there's any kind of uncertainty in the stock market, it's gold this, gold that. Let's go back 50 years, right? So 1971, the price of gold since then is is 50 times higher. However, stocks have performed even better over that 50-year time period. The S&P 500 has produced an annualized return of 11.2%. This is since August of 1971, during that same span of time, right? So S&P 500 up 11.2%. Gold annualized returns 8.2%. So it's interesting to me because you're right. There's always commercials. There's always people coming to me asking about gold. Mm -hmm. And my response is always the same. And it goes back to our founders, Nathan and Ed. And they've said, yes, gold is great for two things. Saying I love you and saying I'm sorry. But beyond that, are you going to stock gold bullion in your home? No. Well, (laughs) well, at least you, you, you get interest on it, don't you? No. No. Well, yeah. Oh, no. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know. Well, wait. But but there are dividends, right? That that you can no. reinvent. No. No. It liter- literally sits there, and then okay, um, you've got to find a place to store it. So you you buy it and you put it away, and you know you might look at it once in a while, and, and maybe it goes up, maybe it doesn't. Did everybody when it ran from nine hundred an ounce to eighteen hundred an ounce? Did everybody sell? No, most people hold on to it forever because they're afraid. It, it it's really it's really the asset class for fear. It and, is, and, and and I get okay, yeah. They don't they don't make that much anymore, and and well, okay, whatever. Um, it it just doesn't work real well as a long term investment in my book. I, I mean, you look at a ten year period. Unless you it, want to look at a hundred year long investment. Yeah, exactly, and it <laughs> might it might do spectacularly in in one year. But what about the other nine years you were sitting yeah. on it? You know, that, that's that's the concern I have and, and why I'm I'm not what I would consider a gold bug. There are certain people that are gold bugs and they just love gold. Good for them. But, you know, as far as does it make sense to put money in and use as another substantial portion of your portfolio? Not so much. The numbers do not prove that out. Here's a no. Simply Money point. Gold may not be the inflation hedge that you have always thought it is. Transitioning into retirements, it can be tough. So one way some of you have figured out might be a little easier is called a phased retirement. I don't know, Steve, have you seen anyone do this before? Um, I Yeah, kind of. I I mean, a lot of people tried it over the pandemic and, and you know, that was more of a practice retirement. I'm wondering if I start taking off Fridays, am I phasing in retirement? I, <laughs> I, I kind of like the idea, but your, your dad kind of did this, didn't he? Yeah, so he actually did. He, my dad, is um, not like anything that... That I know and the fact that he retired from the same company he interned for in college. He worked for one company his entire life. So all the changes I've made and moving markets and cities through the years absolutely makes him want to pull his hair out. But when it got close to the time of retirement, he had so much institutional knowledge. I mean, you know, he he did, he was a CFO, but it was a small company. So he did everything from the accounting to HR. And he just had so much knowledge in his brain that he was ready to go, but they weren't necessarily ready to have him go. So he went to four days a week and then three days a week and down to two and (laughs) 
it, it happened slowly over the course of, I don't know, I'd say about a year and a half, two years. But why I think it was so great for him is, um, you know, my mom had passed away maybe a couple of years before. It, it, it allowed him to figure out what life would be like in retirement while yeah. still having a couple of days a week where he knew what he was going and there was going to be structure and things like that to the point where he always said, oh, in retirement, I might work at the airport or I might work at Great American or something like that. By the time he had fully transitioned into retirement, he was good to go. Like he, yeah. he didn't feel any need to work anymore. Now we certainly keep him busy with the grandkids and things like that. And he golfs, but it worked really well for him. And I know that you've seen lots of people who have retired and it's just such a quick change so yeah. fast. Yeah. It doesn't always, tough thing. it doesn't always go that smooth, but I, I think the key that you said about your dad is it worked for the company. Be, yes. Because that's something, if it doesn't work for the company, if you walk in and say, hey, I'm thinking of phasing out my uh, into retirement, they might say, well, how about you phase out today? Yeah. <laughs> you know? How about you phase out by Friday? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and this uh, the larger companies tend to get it. I, I mean, it's a small percentage, but, you know, 6% of employers have formal phased retirement programs, 13% informal. So it's a trend that we're starting to just see get a little bit of traction. I think you're going to see more of this, Amy. And I'm thinking of a local employer. There, There's a machine tool company that uh, had uh, years and years ago, you know, a large population of employees that had been there, just like your dad, you know, mm-hmm. from, from the day they got out of, in, in a lot of cases, high school. And there is a huge amount of knowledge that, they wanted to pass to the next generation. So they encourage these people, uh, don't just retire. Let's start having classes, almost like an apprenticeship, where you teach some of these things that you've been doing for years, but this 25-year-old doesn't have a clue of, and let's get that knowledge to the next generation. And that's why I think this works for for a lot of employers, but not all employers. It, it's, yeah. it's, it's not across the board. I think if this is something that as you're listening, you're like, I I think that might work for me. Well, the question is kind of what do you do? I mean, we've seen this work really well in education, in IT jobs, uh, you know, but, you know, some companies really aren't open to it. So I would say, look around, check out the landscape. Like, do you know anyone in your company who's done this before? If you do. Go to that person before you go to anyone from the company. Ask yeah, them how it worked, how the, yeah, how the company worked with them. So you've got a better of idea of actually, you know, is the company going to work with me on this or I'm going to be hung out to dry? Because you kind of have to go into this with eyes wide open. If you are planning on transitioning because you need the money, it may not be the best thing for you because what we've seen in times like this is you're the first person to get cut. You're the first person to get a pay cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, layoffs happen really easily to someone who's eh, only here two days a week. Well, I figure you got one foot out the door, right. you know, if you're going to say that. And I was kind of joking about, you know, we'll make sure that the company doesn't come back and say, well, why don't you transition today? Um, but seriously, that that's something you have to be ready for because right. there's a couple of major, major concerns. First of all, if you're going to tell the company, I'm thinking of retiring and here's the way I want to do it, they might already be thinking of layoffs and you just solved at least one problem of theirs. Right. You know, yeah. and, and, and from a personal standpoint, some companies offer these really good buyout packages. Okay, we, we need to offer everybody over age 60 
Um, we got to, you know, reduce the workforce by this much. So we're going to offer maybe two years of health care and maybe one year's of severance and, and you know, some really uh, good package. You might have just taken yourself out of the eligibility for that package by saying, hey, I want to do this this type of transition into retirement. So really do your homework before you walk in HR and say, here's 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 an idea I've got that works out great for me. Make sure it works out for the company and know your options. We talk all the time about making a work an option and not an obligation. Yeah. And I think even in this place, you have to be at a place where you know financially if you do go to the boss and they say you're out this week, you're still going to be fine financially. But maybe this is uh, something that mentally and emotionally you think would work for you. Talk to anyone you know who's done it, right? Yeah. And talk about the institutional knowledge that you have and how you would transition that over time to someone else. This is not like a half-baked, like you walk in after your lunch break uh, tomorrow and, hey, I've been thinking about, no, no, no. Have this one well thought out, well planned out uh, before you go into your employer and make sure that, you know, again, you're financially in a place where you can do this before you ever have that conversation. Here's a Simply Money point. A phased retirement, it can be a great way to kind of ease out of your job, but you're going to want to make sure that you um, do it so work is an option and not an obligation. You might have heard this, UC going to the Big 12. Big move athletically, but also there's some dollar signs attached to that. We're going to get to that. Mo Egger hosts the ESPN 1530 afternoon show from 3 to 6 weekdays. He writes for The Athletic. He is a good friend of mine, uh, and he is joining us tonight with your perspective. So, Mo, first of all, I know you're excited about this move. Let's talk about the dollars and cents of this, because it makes a lot of sense for UC. It makes a ton of sense for UC. It's it's uh, good to be with you. Uh, this is really exciting, I think, for everybody who cares about UC sports, but, but what drives all of this, as you well know, is is money. And the University of Cincinnati, I think it would be a little irresponsible to to attach a, a specific dollar figure in terms of what the, the move to the Big 12 is going to mean immediately because those things are negotiated. They may have to pay their way out of the American Athletic Conference early. Uh, when the Big 12 last added members, the two schools that moved in didn't get as much of the the, the media rights pie as the other schools. But the reality is this. The university is in a league right now, the American Athletic Conference, which does not bring in a lot of money. It is moving into a league in the Big 12, which will bring in significantly more money. Okay, so safe to say, I think 2019 numbers were that UC made about, what, $6 million in conference revenue. Um, while we're not saying how much, I'm guessing it will be maybe several times that. Oh, exponentially so, yes. Uh, and and this is all media money. Um, and, yeah. and it's going to be interesting to see, you know, as things move forward, as we, we you know, find uh, find out how much, you know, streaming services and the like are sustainable, which conferences tap into that maybe which conferences tap into legalized gambling. But yes, the Big 12 is massively more lucrative for the University of Cincinnati than the American Athletic Conference was. And I think this kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, snuck up on us. I mean, I think there's been talk for a long time that UC would probably like to go somewhere else, get into a bigger name conference. But at the same time, this one was like out of the blue. Uh, yes, I, I think to a large degree, I think we were all looking at the middle of the decade as to, to when the Big 12 may be altered again by Texas and Oklahoma leaving. The fact yeah. that the announcement came as early as it did, though, was a huge surprise. I mean, I've, I've, I've talked to people 
who work at UC who said, look, we've been working behind the scenes to do everything we can to best position ourselves for the next Mm -hmm. time the Big 12 or another league was looking to add membership. But we were pretty taken aback by the timing of the announcement that Texas and Oklahoma were going to leave the Big 12. Once those two dominoes fell, it was inevitable that the Big 12 was going to move quickly. There was no reason for them to drag their feet. The question was... Who were they going to ask to join their league? And how many schools would they ask to join the league? And then obviously from a local standpoint, would the University of Cincinnati be one of those schools? I really do think, though, you have to give the people at UC a lot of credit because, you know, five years ago, uh, the Big 12 talked about expanding and did not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Three years prior to that, the ACC did expand. They invited the University of Louisville. They did not invite UC. The University of Cincinnati is in a markedly better place now than it was in 2013 and than it was in 2016. I think competitively on the on the field, I think from, from the standpoint of having facilities built, I think from the standpoint of having the university community engaged, and now they stand to benefit financially from all of that. So UC, right, top 10 football team right now. What does this move mean as far as national stage, as far as reputation? Well, here's the good news. You just mentioned it. UC's already a top 10 program, already a top 10 team. They have a very good coach. They're putting players in the National Football League. They played in a huge bowl game last year. So a lot of the things that you want to get from moving into the Big 12, Cincinnati already has. Yeah, they, Yeah, they already have. And so... From a from a reputation and from a prestige standpoint, this is just a bigger deal. And look, th- there are some there are some great institutions in the American Athletic Conference, um, but the league always felt second rate. And mm-hmm. and look, I think to a degree, if you if you bundle all the schools together, especially in football, they did a pretty good job of separating themselves from the other conferences, the Group of Five as we call it. But at the end of the day. They were not at the big kids' table in college athletics and certainly in college football. The league just felt rinky-dink. And, and, and that's not anybody's fault, but in terms of bowl affiliation, in terms of media deals, in terms of just some of the venues that are on the campuses of some of those schools, the league always felt second rate. The Big 12 might not be the SEC. It might not necessarily be the Big 10, but it's not a second-rate league. These are name brands. And... It's not just the the University of Cincinnati that's moving into the Big 12. Central Florida is a massive institution uh, Mm -hmm. in Orlando. BYU has an enormous national following. And uh, the University of Houston brings a lot to the program, a lot to the table in terms of its its basketball program. And I think there's a chance that that school could really benefit from it as well. They just went to the Final Four. All four schools are assets to a conference that now for those schools is the asset that their current conferences aren't. It's like a win-win for everyone. You're it listening really to is. Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC. We're joined by Mo Egger. Of course, you know him from ESPN 1530. He is the know-it-all-about-all-things-sports, which is why we're talking to him today. And I love what you said. This gives UC a seat at the big kids' table when it comes to athletics. And, and while we don't want to put a, a dollar sign on what this conference change can me, mean, obviously, it's several times more. So how do we spend that money, right? What is UC looking at here? I've heard some talk of a practice facility. Yeah, look, uh, football drives everything. Football, and, and I think this is really the main difference at the University of Cincinnati now as opposed to five years ago or 10 years ago or even when they moved into the Big East almost 20 years ago. Football drives the bus, and football mm-hmm. is an asset at, at UC. It is something that it took a long time, I think, for folks at the University of Cincinnati to realize we have to invest in. We have to devote every conceivable resource to football. They've done that. Uh, the next step is a football-only facility. And, and you might roll your eyes and go, 
well, you know, what's wrong with what they have right now? The reality is this is the direction it's moving in, right? Mm -hmm. And if you want to retain coaches and you want to get the best players and you want to be as competitive as possible, you have to throw every conceivable resource in the football. And so from UC's perspective, that is probably going to involve a football facility that includes practice area, meeting space, offices, all the 21st century amenities that all of the other schools that Cincinnati is going to be competing with have. I think, though, the other interesting part of this, Amy, is uh, does this mean an expansion of the athletic department? Because there's two things about this. Number one, the Big 12 Conference is really good in women's softball. Mm. UC doesn't have a women's softball program. UC also last year had to drop men's soccer. Uh, I wonder if down the road this could mean that they bring that program back or that they expand their athletic department by adding a team or two. I I think that's maybe a little bit down the road, but those are things I I I believe are certainly worth paying attention to. So uh, lots of good news, obviously, uh, on all fronts as far as this. Now, uh, my understanding is the current contract with the AAC is 27 more months. How do you see that playing out? Do you see UC waiting that out, or are we going to pay to get out of this earlier? Well, it's it's a divorce, and uh, and and when you're when you when you've agreed with the other party that all right, we're gonna we're gonna dissolve this relationship. Uh, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for the two parties to continue to cohabitate, right? So that's a good point. My guess is my guess is that the exit is going to come earlier than the 27 months. Um, the University of Cincinnati is going to be a member of the American Athletic Conference. The academic year has already started, so uh, for 20. 2021 and 2022 my guess is for 2022 and 2023 it feels like based on everybody that i've talked to that you the 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 smart money would be on the university of cincinnati beginning uh on july 1st 2023 being a member of the big 12 that's not 27 months from now my guess is that they do something similar. The University of Connecticut bolted from the American Athletic Conference uh, two years ago. They had mm-hmm. the same 27-month waiting period. The difference there is they basically bailed on football. They didn't really care about football. That's a basketball school. They mm-hmm. didn't want to be in the American Athletic Conference anymore, and so they negotiated an exit that uh, was not insignificant financially. I think it cost around 10, 12 million bucks, and don't quote me on that specifically, but it cost a lot of money, but everybody was able to move on. The difference here is... The American Athletic Conference is losing three football assets, certainly two football assets and one potential football asset. All three won out. My guess is lawyers lawyers will get involved and they'll figure out a way to negotiate an exit for all three schools that's earlier than 27 months, but that maintains some level of short-term commitment to the American Athletic Conference. So that would mean civil, maybe, for at least another year or so. Mo, if you were to say one thing that UC fans need to keep in mind about why this is a win for them, what's the number one thing that you think they'll see as, as being a fan? Well, what I can tell you is I've used the word asset, and the, the American Athletic Conference, and, and again, this is nobody's fault. The American Athletic Conference has rarely been an asset for the University of Cincinnati. Um, in terms of recruiting, right, you walk into a kid's living room, it's different if on your pullover – is a Big 12 logo versus an American Athletic Conference logo, bowl affiliation. Uh, two yeah. years ago, UC was the had the second-best football team in the American Athletic Conference. They got sent to the Birmingham Bowl in a stadium that should have been condemned 20 years ago. In the Big 12, the bowl games are more prestigious. They're also more lucrative. Basketball-wise, uh, you know me, Amy. I'm a huge University of Cincinnati basketball fan. Playing, I know that. Playing in that league... The bottom of the league always dragged down the resume for for getting to the NCAA tournament. It made scheduling so difficult because you had to account for teams built into your schedule that aren't very good. That you, there's no upside to be 
beating them, and there's nothing mm-hmm. but downside if you get upset. The Big 12 is going to be an asset. It's going to help recruiting. It's going to help fundraising. It's going to help competitively. It's going to help from a prestige standpoint. It is a no-brainer win-win for fans. All right. Well, we talk about assets all the time here on the Simply Money Show. Mo Egger joining us tonight with why this is going to be a huge asset. You see moving to the Big 12. You've been listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You've been listening to the best of Simply Money. If you could do us a favor, send the show to a friend. If you think they may benefit from it, too, at All Worth Financial, we help you retire better.